Good morning, Salt City. Glad you guys could find us this morning as we changed locations. My name is Colin, and I serve as one of the college pastors here at Salt City Church. So if you're new to Salt City, we actually have two college ministries that Salt City supports that we call Salt Company. We have one that meets in Minneapolis, and I have the privilege of leading uh, our Minneapolis Salt Company, and then we have another Salt Company that meets in St. Paul, so right around here reaching schools like Concordia. This morning, uh, we are going to be continuing in our series called Sons of the Faith. So we're looking at three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and we're going to be wrapping up 1 Timothy this morning. And so if you have a Bible, would you pull it out? We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, the, the last chapter of 1 Timothy. As you turn there, I have a question for you guys. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to have knowledge of the future? To know what's going to happen and to bring that knowledge to the present day. To bring that knowledge to decisions you're making today and to bring that knowledge to decisions other people are making and helping other people make decisions. I guarantee you'd make probably better decisions. You'd make different decisions if you knew the future. And one of the decisions One of the things you'd probably do is tell people to avoid bad decisions. So let me give you an example. Imagine it's 15, 20 years ago. You're talking to family and friends, and they are selling you on their investment strategy, which is investing with a gentleman by the name of Bernie Madoff. Here's what you'd do if you knew the future. You would plead and beg and urge them to not put their money with Bernie Madoff. Why? Because you know that that money would end up being wasted away. So if you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, he ran the, the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, selling, like losing billions of people's dollars. If you knew the future, you would urge people to, to spend their money differently than investing with him. And this morning, this is what Paul's doing is as an older man that has a vision for eternity and has just more years under his belt, he's urging a younger man, Timothy, to say, hey, invest your time, invest your resources, invest your things wisely because I don't want you to get to the end of your life and realize that you have nothing. I don't want you to get to the end of your life and and see that you've pursued emptiness. He's urging Timothy to see one thing is gain to see one thing as worth giving his life to, and that thing is godliness. And so for us this morning, my urge and plea by looking at 1 Timothy 6 is that you would see godliness as gain, godliness as the only thing that is gain, and not that godliness is somehow uh, a road to get somewhere else, but that godliness in and of itself is a thing worth giving your life to. So let's jump into the text this morning. We're starting in uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 2. This is what it says. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived 
of the truth. So here's the first thing that we're going to see this morning, is we're going to see the emptiness in quarrels, the, the emptiness of giving our life to false truths that lead to quarrels. The, the first thing Paul contrasts right away in 1 Timothy 6 as he's summarizing his letter to Timothy is he contrasts right theology, right thinking about God that leads to godliness with this false teaching, these false beliefs that lead to conceit and controversy and quarrels and suspicions. So he's saying that the thing we give our lives to, there are two outcomes to it. There's evil and there's godliness. And there's not really an in-between. Something else that I want you to notice about that text is that Paul doesn't, in this text, characterize the type of teaching that, that's producing false doctrine. He's not telling you the false teaching that they're giving. He's simply telling you the fruit of the false teaching. He's simply saying you can know false teaching by the outcomes that it produces. He's echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, where Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching his disciples about false prophets. And this is what he says. He says, you will know that they're a false prophet by the fruit that by the fruit that their teaching produces. If it produces poor fruit, then you know the teaching is flawed. And so I think Paul is echoing the words of Jesus here, where he's saying, actually, we can tell the legitimacy of a teaching by the things that it produces. If it is producing fruit that is not godliness, then that teaching is false. So we don't exactly know what's happening under Timothy's leadership when he's, when he's writing this letter, but the people in the church were looking for righteousness. We're looking for this way of life that was good and right to them outside of godliness, outside of the words in scripture. They were urgent for things to, to change, for, for them to understand uh, something that, that's right, but what it was producing was poor motives, not assuming right intentions. They were trying to look for arguments to win, not hearts to be changed. And I feel like this is so true in the culture that we live in. Let me just read some of these statements that he says in 1 Timothy 6 again. See if any of these resonate with what we see in culture. An unhealthy craving for controversy. Here's what we see. Controversy sells. So every news headline, something kind of controversial because I, people read things that are controversial. It says this produces quarrels about words. One of the things I like to do is read just moderately edgy social media posts because every comment nitpicks the wording of the previous comment. And you like look at some of these posts, it's like, open to see all 100 comments, right? Because they're just going back and forth, seeing if, if they can win the argument by pointing out flawed words or flawed logic in the one before. This produces envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Here's what people love to do. Oh, you believe this about this thing? Well, then you must believe that. And they clump you in with other people, with other evil thoughts or, or thinking that you believe evil things simply by holding one statement to be true. 
And this produces constant friction among people. Here's what Facebook's algorithm does. It'll show you posts that they know you'll agree with, so you click on those, and they'll intentionally show you posts they know you won't agree with, because you'll click on those. Because they want people to butt heads with each other, because back to the first point, controversy produces sales. I mean, I feel like all these things could be subtitles of books defining 21st century American politics or the information and social media age that we live in. Like, we are surrounded with this idea. So why does it continue? Why are there false teachings that produced controversy and quarrels 2,000 years ago, and we haven't gotten away from that? Well, because false teachers don't produce or don't promise that their teaching will produce controversy. They promise that their teaching will produce righteousness. You, you want to be right, you want to be on the right side of history? Listen to me. You want to be in the right accepted social group? Listen to my teaching and the way of life that, that I have for you. They're trying to get you to see the world through a, a superior lens than other teachings. And people believe them because we have innate and an, an innate longing for righteousness. People want to be right. They want to understand things. They want to be on the right side of history. They want to understand truth. And so I don't actually think the root desire is wrong. That the longing for righteousness, the, the longing to see things rightly is wrong. But there are teachers that are convincing our world of wrong ways to pursue righteousness and have been for over 2,000 years, and it produces the same fruit that Paul wrote about. And here's what this reminded me of this week, is that the problem in our world is not a false, one false ideology or one false political group or one false political leader, but the problem of our world is sin. Because even as con the things we argue about changes, we continue to argue. We continue to be quarrelsome because the problem is sin. And when we realize the problem is sin, that's not a problem out in our world. It's a problem in this room. And more specifically than it being a problem in this room, it's a problem in my own heart. That I have a susceptibility to false teaching. That I have a susceptibility ability to longing for righteousness and looking for that outside of God's word and looking for that outside of godliness, that if I'm not properly assigning my longing for righteousness, it's going to lead me to controversy and quarrels. Like I see the longing in me to fight about words, to, to try to win an argument. Why? Because if I can win an argument with someone, if I can say something where they have nothing to say back to me, that, in my mind, is making a statement about my righteousness, that my righteousness found in myself, my self-sufficient righteousness, is enough. It's this belief that, that I can be right in and of myself. I can be sufficient. I can have a secured identity in my own righteousness. But the problem with that is that that's actually not righteousness at all. Any righteousness that's leading towards quarrels and controversy isn't actually righteousness. It's 
something that's robbed of truth, not bringing about truth. It's something that leads to death. The, the problem is not what you're fighting about. It's not trying to solve the, oh, we just need to fight about the right things. The problem is that we're fighting all together because truth should produce godliness, which means for us as Christians, that's not to say we can't believe something that's different. That's to say the things that we believe that are different should produce godliness, not quarrels. That's how the Christian life is lived, is by pursuing godly gain. The Christian life is lived by pursuing godly gain, and Paul outlines two ways of doing this. Two ways of doing this. So we're going to look at the false way first, and then the, the true way second. This is 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 5. We read a little bit of this. It says, In constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Skipping down to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So this is kind of the second point of this morning is that is the empty promises of wealth. So the first one is that people fall into believing deceptive teaching that leads to quarrels. The second is that sometimes people believe that godliness is a means to wealth. This is what people are doing. They're, they're seeing the value of godliness and they're saying that's just the, the vehicle to get to where I want to go. The vehicle to get to my security, to my prosperity. They are believing the lie that because God calls himself generous and loving, if they can work really hard to, to love God, then somehow that generosity and love means that he will bestow that on people in this side of heaven, right? All the promises of, uh, of being an inheritor of his inheritance in the heavenly kingdom, they believe translate to this world. But they're, they're missing something. They're missing something because as what they think godliness is, is actually self-seeking and in its nature, godliness isn't about self, but is about God. And so if we think godliness is a means to something else, we have totally misdefined and misused the word godliness. We're not actually pursuing godliness at all. And throughout church history, this belief of uh, godliness being a means to wealth is called the prosperity gospel, which by God's grace, this church, I believe, has been protected from the prosperity gospel. I don't think many people in this room uh, believe the prosperity gospel, which we need to see as a grace because a lot of the world struggles with it. But I think there's something in the midst of this teaching, in the midst of the text that we just read that we do miss. And I can say that because I know as I was preparing for this morning, I, I was convicted. I was like, oh my gosh, I missed this. So as we jump into that, I just want to warn you, we're going to talk about money. 
Here's why I warn you of that, is that I think when, when someone from the stage says we're going to talk about money, you can kind of say, oh, I don't have very much of that, so it's not going to apply to me. And Paul is going to protect us from that way of thinking. Here's how he does that. He, he chooses his world, words carefully. He doesn't say, to those that are rich. He says, but those who desire to be rich. He doesn't say, those who have money. He says, for the love of money. So Paul's not rooting his argument in people who have it. He's rooting his argument in people who want it, which we all know we can want something we don't have, and we can desire to be in a place that we are not yet in. Here's what happens. This is what the text goes on to say. When we let the love of money and the desire to be rich go unchecked, it leads to temptation and all sorts of evils. It leads to discontentment. Like, I see that in my own life. Man, if I had a little bit nicer car, if I had a little bit bigger house, if I had one more zero in my bank account, my life would be so much better. My life would be so much better if I just made a little bit more money. Or sometimes it's not about the ease of life, but it's about the security, where we find our security. Man, if my emergency fund was a little bit bigger, I'd, I'd feel like I was in a better spot. Or, man, if my salary was a little bit larger, I'd feel like I was a better provider. Because we root our identity and our desires in money, even if we don't have it. I don't think we believe the prosperity gospel, but I do think we believe a false gospel that Paul is calling out here. I know I do, and this is what it is, that we believe our desire for wealth has no effect on our godliness. And I see that in my own life. But Paul's saying the exact opposite is true. My desire for money, my desire for security and prosperity found in wealth has a direct and damaging effect on my godliness. The more I see money as a thing to hold on to, as a thing to cling to, as a thing to tie my life to, the less I'm seeing God that way. The less I'm seeing God as the thing to cling to and tie my life to. This is how Paul said, this is why Paul says that that way of thinking is foolish. This is verse 7. For he brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So no matter how much money we make or how many things we accumulate, it does not translate to eternal life. And eternity is way longer than retirement. Way longer. And so what Paul is saying is like, if you're going to live your life towards one goal, don't let it be 20 years of retirement. Let it be eternity with me. And I think we, we often lose sight of eternity. I lose sight of eternity. We're short-sighted and believe, man, that those 20 years are important, which they are, but they're not the most important. Here's what Paul is saying. Maybe another way of saying it is that a moving trailer, a moving trailer never follows a hearse. 
We don't bring with us that which we accumulate in this world, or another way of saying it is our investment in the stock market doesn't return dividends on the other side of death. So does Paul hate money? Like this is kind of the question, right? Like, ah, what do I do? Because we all have some money. So does Paul hate money? No, he actually addresses those with money. This is verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may, not take, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So here's what Paul is saying is you can either spend your life holding and clinging to money, holding and clinging to an uncertainty of riches, using his language, or holding on to godliness and in the meantime, collecting good works. So to those that are rich, which from a world perspective is almost everyone in the room, Don't put your security in the uncertainty of riches, in the number of zeros in your bank account, but allow your hope to be in the certainty of the faithfulness of God. That your money can be taken from you, but God's faithfulness to you cannot. I think we think there's kind of an in-between which there's, there's a, a wise way to handle money, but I think we think there's an in-between and I can like run after money and pursue money as an ambition of my life and I can run after God and pursue godliness as an ambition of my life. And there's really no way to do both well. If godliness leads to financial gain, that's one thing. But if we pursue money, we are at some level not pursuing godliness. We can collect one thing. Like we can either collect good works or we can collect riches, but we can't collect both. Which this made me think, uh, we're just like people of accumulation. Here's how I know that. Uh, Growing up, everyone has a collection of some kind, right? Coins, Hot Wheels, uh, different, different collectible items. I collected little golf balls. Uh, you know, go to Mount Rushmore, golf ball has Mount Rushmore on it, really cool. Uh, at least I thought it was. Um, nothing like my cousin though, she collected shot glasses as like a 10 year old. <laughs> it's just weird, right? You know, oh, I went over to, you know, my friend's house. Oh, really, like, what did you learn? Shot glasses are really cool, right? Like she had them on a, on a shelf in her room. Ten-year-olds with shot glasses, shelf in their room, just kind of odd. Uh, but there were, there were some people, well, here, here's what I'll say. Those, all those things always end up in a garage sale. You don't even sell them at the garage sale. You put them in a bin, take for free, right? Like no value. But there were some of my friends that collected Pokemon cards, that's a good thing to collect 20 years ago. (laughs) Because they sell them for like thousands of dollars. I had another friend who's like, my mom gave my Pokemon cards away for free at a garage sale, and they were worth thousands of dollars. It's like, that's that's a tragedy. But here's what I'm saying. We can collect things in our life 
that translate to nothing in the future to no value in the future. And we can collect things in our life that translate to infinite value in the future. So if we're gonna spend our life collecting one thing, pursuing one thing, would it, would it be to hold on to the security of God and collect good works along the way? That we'd grow in contentment that God has given us, will continue to give us all that we need in him and let that, be, and let that set us on a, a road towards godliness. Which this, what I'm about to say, this doesn't mean our church is perfect, but I think by and large, I'm really encouraged by this church. I just want to give you guys a couple reasons. I mean, Travis just came up here and gave an announcement about our building. Like you guys are giving your money, giving your life to seeing godliness continue, to investing in kingdom work. I have the privilege of going into the building to work, like this beautiful building every day. And I'm so thankful for this church that you guys have lived generously so that we can build a building that reaches more people. Uh, another thing, guys, we have two college ministries. I said that at the beginning. College ministry is so expensive. If you're a college student in the room, we love you guys a whole lot. You guys don't give any money to the church. <laughs> it's, it's just true. And you, so... You guys are so generous to allow us to reach two cities and university students on those cities that in a lot of ways probably wouldn't hear the gospel without your kingdom investment. Thank you. Even the places we meet, like we're off where we usually are. Usually we meet at the graduate. You guys pay for parking every week so that we can go on campus and be near college students, be a church that's on the campus for college students, investing in the kingdom, investing in good works. That's what you guys are. Like, you guys are an example of this godly living to me. So thank you. And here's really my encouragement. Keep going. Just continue to see it as a great investment, as a great way to spend your money. Continue to run after godliness. Let that be the ambition of your life. And this is how Paul continues to write of the ambition of our lives. This is verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The godliness in and of itself is great gain. That's what he's saying. That godliness isn't a road to something else, but that godliness is the destination. He goes on to say, verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Those are the, the false teachings earlier. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the, well, the thing we're going to wrap up with. The third point this morning is that as a church, we would take hold of eternal life. Here's what Paul is saying to Timothy, is that in the midst of all the wild teaching surrounding you, would you run after the teachings that are set, that aren't, would you not run after the teachings that are centered on self-righteousness and self-indulgence, and instead run after the teachings that are centered on godliness? A godliness rooted in contentment. The godliness is enough for Timothy. So Paul talks about three ways of taking hold of eternal life, of taking hold of godliness. 
He, he says th- for three things to do, flee, pursue, and fight. So that Timothy would flee from the false teachings circulating the church, that Timothy would run towards righteousness found in Christ, true godliness being the end in itself. That he'd believe the gospel and to continue steadfastly in imitation of God's faithfulness to us. And that this would produce a a gentle spirit in Timothy. And the third thing he says for Timothy to do is for Timothy to fight. He says, Timothy, at the end of the day, you just have to fight for what matters most. So here's how we're going to wrap up the last chunk of this message this morning is I just want to talk about what it means for Salt City Church to, to flee, to pursue, and to fight. So first one, flee. I'm not going to extend this point very often because really this is what this whole series has been up to this point, is, how, is that we need to be people that recognize false teaching and run from it. Not flirt with it, but run from it, flee from it. And so as a church, we need to, to protect doctrine. Here's how, here's how we do that. Tony talked about this last week. Just continue to trust our elders. Our elders are amazing. Just continue to trust them and their leadership. And two, to fall under the authority of the Bible. That the Bible's not an, an opinion, one of the opinions that we listen to in this place, in this church, but the Bible is the authority that we fall under, and our elders do that well, but we as a church can continue to do that. But what's true is that we need each other's help because we all are susceptible to false teaching. We, at the end of the day, we're all susceptible to false teaching, and so how do you flee from it? Maybe we need to be more aware of our news media consumption. How much news are we intaking? Maybe we need to be aware of our social media consumption. How much is social media influencing our false teaching? And maybe we need to have the courage to have a hard conversation with a friend because we need each other to see false doctrine. So maybe we need to to have a hard conversation. After we flee, so we flee from false doctrine, we pursue. We as a church need to pursue the godliness that's ahead of us. This is, I want to read really quickly what uh, 1 Timothy 6 says again. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Earlier, he said, pursue godliness with contentment. In all these things that I just listed, all these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, they are characteristics of, of God himself. So when we pursue godliness, we pursue God. We pursue the character of God. It's who he is. It's in his nature. And in pursuing godliness, we are inevitably not self-seeking, but God-seeking. But that's harder to do in real life than it is just hearing me say that. Why? Because we live in a cool city, big, relatively big city that is awesome and a really fun city to live in, but it's full of a lot of people and organizations that have other ambitions for your life, that tell you to pursue other things with your life that aren't God. And what we need to remember is that they're, what they're telling us isn't neutral, but it's affecting what we're pursuing. And we can't pursue two ambitions in our life. 
It's kind of like what the illustration earlier. We can't collect two things with our life. We can't pursue two things. We can either pursue godliness or these other promises that the world has for us. And so, would this church pursue godliness? And when we pursue godliness, when we pursue God himself, we'll find contentment. Because in God is everything that you could ever need. In Christ is everything that you could ever need. And so pursue Christ in your career, in your living situation, in your family time, and in your quiet time, in your free time. Which, okay, that's broad brush, big picture. Pursue God in everything that, that you have. But what's, what's one way? What's one way this week that you can pursue what God has for you? See your work as godly with the lens of godly ambition, not selfish ambition. Grow in godliness in your career or with your family, not just see it as two separate parts of your life. But when we do that, here's what we have to remember as a church, is that we can only pursue godliness. We can only pursue God because he first pursued us. That we all have fallen into the susceptibility of false teachings, thinking that we can find our righteousness on our own, thinking that we can be pleasure seekers outside of God, and that we all are sinful. And in order to pursue God, we need to see that he first pursued us, that he walked this earth to pursue us, to, to point us in a, in a different direction. Would you remember this week that your pursuit of God is only a response to his pursuit of you. That true righteousness is found, not earned. That true love is discovered, not manufactured. That we need to see what Jesus has done on our behalf before we can go and pursue godliness on our own. This is how we're going to wrap up. This is how Paul wraps up. The last thing Paul says to do is fight. Which, okay, fleeing from false teaching, I'm, I'm, with, I get that, right? Like that sounds like a really godly thing to do. Pursuing righteousness, that sounds like another really godly thing to do. But fight, fighting doesn't always have like a really godly connotation. Um, but I feel, I'm really thankful for that because here's what it's saying is the Bible is like relevant because I think a lot of our lives feels more like a fight than it does kind of this walk in the park, easy thing to do. He doesn't, just say fight in general, though. He says fight the good fight of faith. That the way godliness is won in our lives is not a walk in the park, but standing in a boxing ring. When he says take hold of eternal life, what he's saying, what we often think he's saying is like taking hold of a warm cup of coffee on a brisk December morning. Like easy, can't, don't want to let that go. But what it what it, all often, what it often feels like is hanging on the edge of a cliff knowing that you don't have a rope, that it's clinging for your life. That's what it feels like to cling to eternal life a lot of the time. It, it's just holding on, knowing that we're not holding on for this life, but we're holding on for the next one. Here's what Paul's really saying to Timothy. He's saying, it is worth it. Would you hold on? Because it's worth it. Because you just need to believe that the next life is better. Sometimes it just takes getting through the next day and pursuing God in that. So the ask is not to have all the answers. 
Not to know exactly what God's doing and when he's doing it, but just to hold on, believe, and refuse to give up. To, to have a refusal to hold on to other things in the meantime. Like when life gets hard, not to, oh, maybe I'll cling to my financial security, but refusing to hold on to anything that is not godliness. I, one of my favorite Bible stories comes from uh, Mark 9, where a man walks up to Jesus, and he has a sick son. And the man says, like, Jesus, if you can heal my son, would you? And Jesus kind of turns, says, if I can heal him, I'm the son of God. Like, I'm God incarnate, if I can heal him. And this is what the man says. Five words that I think our church needs to hear this morning because I needed to hear this week. This is what the man says. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. You see, God's honored by our fight to believe. We don't need perfect faith for God to be honored. We just need a faith that refuses to give up. A faith that has this white-knuckled grip on the promises of God and refuses to let go. A faith that believes that Jesus has won our contentment on our behalf. A, a faith that believes that he's coming back and with it bring, bringing victory and restoration. Sometimes we don't need to know all the answers. We just need to refuse to let go. Here's, here's how I thought about this. Uh, growing up, my cousins had a, a boat, and I loved, like, growing up on the lake. Uh, well, I didn't grow up on the lake, but growing up around the lake, uh, learning to water ski. I probably learned to water ski when I was, like, 60 pounds. Um, I kid you not. So I was, like, standing on my water skis before the boat had even started, right? Because just, like, it was easy. The buoyancy of the water skis just pulled me right up. Wow, this is so easy. I don't know why everyone struggles with it so much. Um, then, you know, kind of stopped skiing. They got rid of the boat. And then when I was in high school, it was like super cool to wakeboard. So I was like, ah, I can learn how to do this because it was so easy to learn how to water ski. I can learn how to wakeboard. Given I learned how to wakeboard when I was about 100 pounds heavier, quite literally. Um, and I just could not figure it out. Like, I was trying to get the technique, kind of turn your feet as the boat's going. Um, and I, I, like, thought I had nailed down the technique of getting, getting up on a wakeboard. I just couldn't seem to figure it out. And at one point, it's, like, pretty profound. wasn't in the moment. I was pretty frustrated in the moment. But looking back, it was really profound. My buddy looked at me. He was, like, pulling the boat around. He was driving, threw me the rope. And he said, Colin, here's the issue. You just need to hold on. You don't need to know more technique of how to get up on a wakeboard. You just need to hold on. Like, I just needed to get the rope close to my chest, be willing to get water in my face, and hold on for the boat to pull me out of the water. And I think we, Salt City, we just need to hold on to the promises of God. Not always know the technique, but just refuse to let go. I've been thinking about the famous Mike Tyson quote this week, which, which says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Love that quote, good. Here's what, I, here's what I feel like Paul would say. The Christian life is planning to get punched in the mouth and refusing to get out of the ring. It's not, it's not always pretty. It's not always, it doesn't always go according to plan, but it's a refusal to get out of the ring because you know that Jesus is coming back on your behalf and gonna fight for you. I've needed those words this week. I feel like this week, I've honestly just been stumbling forward. Like one day out of the, the next, like just enough grace to get me through the day. Just enough grace to, to wake up the next morning and continue forward. And I've needed the words, fight the good fight of faith. 
Just fight. Fight. Keep going. And the five words from, from Mark 9, I do believe. Help my unbelief. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. That the promises that God says to hold on to are worth it because in eternity we will be given everything we long for now. That he's going to be the fulfillment that when he comes back, he will be the fulfillment of all that he has promised. And in light of this, this is how Paul ends 1 Timothy with four words. He says this, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Not empty promise, not like a words of good luck, hope you can get through it, but a prayer that the sustaining grace of Jesus would hold them to the end. But let's pray to that end as a church. God, we need grace. We need, we need the grace to wake up and keep fighting. The grace to hold on. Because a lot of times it, yeah, it doesn't feel like we have all the answers. It doesn't feel like, um, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's worth it. But would you remind us that it is? Would you give us a, a fresh perspective on eternity? That, that we can fight to believe, saying no to the empty promises of wealth and the empty promises of false teaching and saying yes to the promise of eternal life with you, that Jesus has purchased victory on our behalf and we can refuse to let go because he ultimately has all authority. God, would that be the promise that Salt City holds on to this week? Christ in Jesus' name, amen.